Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Steve. What we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, head out to a natural spot, and share with you everything we learned. So, Bill, what are we talking about today? <laughs> today, we are talking about the devil crayfish. <laughs> <laughs> so, why are we talking about this guy? Is it, like, threatened or endangered? Well, I think you're the best one to explain to people how we arrived at this episode. Because <laughs> it actually happened the first time you recorded with Dr. Wayne Gall. Yeah, so after I recorded the Tick episode with Wayne, um, we were parting ways, and... Just before he was about to leave, he stopped me and he was like, oh man, I got to tell you about this crayfish. Maybe we could do an episode on this crayfish in the future. And he starts telling me the story and I'm like, Wayne, Wayne, you got to stop. Can I record <laughs> you right now? And then so, so I can show the recording to Bill later, you know, because this sounds like a really cool episode. And uh, so he let me get the mic out. I recorded him, had Bill listen to the 10 minute clip later that week. And then, you know, it's only been what a year or so <laughs> or more yeah but um but uh we finally got around to it and uh we decided to make an episode with wayne gall about cambaris diogenes the devil's crayfish that's right yeah now did you know did you come across devil's crayfish or devil crayfish doesn't oh. matter i guess it's a common name yeah but... i don't know <laughs> all right so this episode is going to be a little bit different because steve and i we're going to do a little intro here just give you a little bit of background but the majority of this episode will be a recording we did a few days ago at Tift Nature Preserve uh, near Buffalo, New York, an urban nature preserve. Regular listeners will know we've recorded a few episodes there before. But uh, Wayne took us out to look for the burrows of this species. They create these underground burrows. They're a burrowing crayfish. And they create these chimneys of mud, which we'll be talking about more. But uh, Wayne shares some great stories with us. And spoiler alert... Do we actually find the crayfish? No. Uh, and, and I think it would be good to say this now, but the devil's crayfish is one of those crayfish that you actually have to have in your hand in order to make sure you have it in front of you, I guess. Right. Or, uh, did that make any sense at all? To make sure you have the species. <laughs> right, exactly. Because yeah. there's another species, Orconectes immunis, that makes the exact same structures as the devil's crayfish. So it's another burrowing species too. Yeah, and it makes the chimneys and it's found in the same uh, regions. So without actually having the crayfish in hand, you can't tell the two apart just by their chimneys or by their burrowing structures. So. Right, so folks, if you're thinking, well, why am I gonna bother listening to this episode if they don't find what they're looking for? Well, obviously you're not a regular listener then <laughs> because there's been quite a few episodes where we haven't found our species. Yeah, and really this isn't, exactly how I thought the episode was going to go. This kind of turned into an adventure interview. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that the fun is in the adventure of the thing, not necessarily the results. <laughs> and hanging out with Dr. Wayne Gall is just a pleasure. Yeah. This guy just knows so much. He's great personality, has tons of great stories. So we went out for an afternoon of an adventure. At one point, Wayne was elbow deep in the mud his his <laughs> hands and forearms were caked in mud and he's digging for the crayfish yeah so we don't find the crayfish but we found evidence of burrowing species uh and it's going to be a great listen now we do have plans we are going to try to get out to some other sites and see if we can locate the devil's crayfish 
Yeah, and I'm thinking instead of doing a follow-up audio episode, uh, Wayne is a huge fan of video, so maybe we'll do a short video piece similar to how we did the, the little video for oh, ticks. That's I was a thinking. good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening to this uh, at some later date right now, it's September 2018. If you're listening to this at some much later date, you may want to check our YouTube channel to see yeah. if we have a video of the devil's crayfish. So like Bill was saying, Wayne's a super impressive guy, and I'm not sure that we could ever do him justice in a brief intro, but I felt like maybe we could list off a few highlights at yeah, least. That's yeah, that's a good idea. So Wayne has had a long career in natural history and in education. Uh, he was the first administrator at Tift Nature Preserve, where we're recording most of today's episode. Uh, so that was way back in the 80s. But since then, he's worked at the Buffalo Museum of Science. He was the regional entomologist for New York State Department of Health. And that's where he had a lot of his contact with ticks and insect-borne diseases. Yeah. Since 2016, he served as the U.S. Department of Agriculture's entomologist and identifier. And one thing I didn't know is that he has an Indian and a Southeast Asian caddisfly species named in his honor. Wow. Yeah. Goera gallai and Psychomaya gallai. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so Wayne has a big background with a, a big focus on entomology, but he also just has an amazing wealth of knowledge in terms of general natural history, botany, zoology. Spending any time with Wayne is an education for naturalists of any level. And the talk today is mostly focusing on just one small part of his life, kind of like in the 80s and 90s right. when all of these events were happening. And specifically, just uh, one of his publications in the Bulletin of the Buffalo Society of Natural Sciences from 1998. Uh, but before we get into the interview, astecology has never come up on the podcast, so I think we should just jump <laughs> into some background info. What is astecology? The study of crayfish, Bill, obviously. <laughs> Everybody knows that. <laughs> I think I did come across that word in the research. Yeah, yeah. But I think the most important question that people want answered is, is it crayfish, crawfish, or crawdad? Yeah, so first of all, the <laughs> correct vernacular name for this group is crayfish. Um, the correct. Yeah, and everything else is just made up. Uh, so that being said, you might hear some plebes refer to them as crawdads. <laughs> Uh, crawl dads. Have you heard that one? I crawl did. dad. Yeah. Uh, freshwater lobsters, mountain lobsters, mud bugs, and yabbies. Yabbies, yeah. Now, did you look into yabbies? It's Australian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like, so the, Ab the Australian Aborigines speak more than 200 languages, so there's like more than 300 names for crawfish. <laughs> You, oh my god i almost said crawfish i came so close <laughs> to saying crawfish <laughs> so they have they have over 300 words for crayfish just from that part of the world so that was an extremely limited uh, list of wrong names for crayfish because we live in a world where if a species name is misspelled by even one letter it's recorded as a synonym so <laughs> and and even the correct vernacular name is terrible it's derived from a french word and forgive me i never took french um Ecrovisa, I think. <laughs> I, I looked it up on a, on a howtopronounce.com or whatever. <laughs> and, that, and that basically just means crevice, right? I, I don't even know. Does it? That's what I, I came across. I, I thought that it was the um, just the French word for the animal itself, but but maybe it's that's where it's derived from. Well, it, from what I could tell, it was a little hard to figure out what the etymological definition was trying to say, but it seemed to come from that French word, which came from a Germanic word for crevice. Got it. And then somehow it was combined with the word fish, probably because it lives in water, <laughs> like a fish. Right. 
And, and it does breathe through gills. Yeah, I know. Well, that's like naming a beetle bird or bug, <laughs> which we do, ladybugs and ladybird beetles. Uh, but it's really silly. Silly to get angry about, sure, but even sillier to do in the first place. <laughs> All right. And well, I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's walk a little bit. Yeah, yeah. People coming through here. Yeah, we're right in the middle of a frolf course. Yeah. So. Everyone knows frolf, right? <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> All right, but... We should point out that those different words for crayfish that people hear like crawdad and crawfish, those are mostly regional names for the animal. So I did come across the fact that crayfish is what we call it mostly in the northern U.S. and then crawdad is heard more in central and southwestern regions and crawfish is further south. Okay, okay. It's crazy, only a small part of the U.S. has the right word. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so little bit of background on this group of animals. They're part of the order Decapoda, right? Mm-hmm. Which literally means 10-footed. So they, the animals in this group have appendages, and they could have claws at the end of them, or they could be walking feet. Uh, but that's going down a rabbit hole. Once I started looking into that, I was like, oh, this could be almost an episode on its, on its own. Sure. So people always ask, are crayfish related to lobsters? And the answer is? No, well... <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> they are related to lobsters. And they superficially look like lobsters, but they are, they're not lobsters. <laughs> they're not, right. They're okay. not lobsters, but they are related. Yeah. So crayfish are related to crabs, lobsters, prawns, and shrimp. And like many of their relatives, these guys are scavengers. Mm-hmm. Did you know that the greatest diversity of crayfish in the world is found in the southeastern U.S.? Oh, no way. Yeah, over 330 species. Holy cow. Yeah. I'm surprised. That's almost every crayfish in the entire world. 330 species? There's only 409 species. Really? <laughs> in 18 genera, and the vast majority are found in the eastern United States, um, but I didn't know they were kind of localized to the southeastern United States. Well, I think if what you're saying is correct... Oh, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're all localized there. That's just where they're concentrated. You know what I mean? So highest population per square diversity. mile oh diversity yeah. okay so you get the largest diversity of species in the southeastern u.s right yeah and, and you were just talking about a few of their uh close relatives and it is important to note that they are confused sometimes with lobsters but they're also confused with shrimp crabs and uh the south american eaglid crabs which aren't quite crabs but they kind of look like them so I thought it might be a good idea just to list off a few bullet points of what actually makes a crayfish a crayfish. So first of all, the body is long and not flat. Easy enough. Secondly, the abdomen, the segmented abdomen, the part that people call the tail, like if you go out to a restaurant and get the lobster tail, that is not flexed under the body. It's just hanging free out the back. And it has a hard nose-like projection called a rostrum. Um, right where you'd imagine like the nose would be on the crayfish. Uh, its first three pairs of walking legs have pincer-like claws, and that includes that large claw called the um, keloped. Keloped? Yeah, the keloped. Those big, big, big claws. Right, what grabs you when you're trying to pick them up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, there's a pair of grooves in an hourglass shape called an areola, spelled exactly like the human areola. Right. So uh, if you're going to look this one up, type in lobster areola. Or, Crayfish areola, because they don't have one. Lobsters will not have this, and that's the point, is that that is an easy way to tell these guys from lobsters. So crayfish have nipples. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> so on their carapace, which is like their back, it's kind of like the, the back of their head and down their back a bit. On the lower part of that, the more rear part of the carapace, that's where you'll see this hourglass indent in the, uh, in the carapace. Okay. Yep. And lastly, its swimming is restricted to backwards movement. And this is actually something that's maybe the most noticeable and, and important behavior of crayfish. And actually the word crayfish can actually be used as a verb meaning to backpedal, desert, or withdraw. I've never heard that. Yeah. <laughs> I, hey, so, I mean, that's just kind of to push it forward that this is something that's diagnostic of crayfish that you don't see other groups gotcha. doing. Yep. So if you're going to run away from something, you'd say, I'm going to crayfish. <laughs> yeah. uh, when, when a party is getting awkward, when there's a bad ratio, <laughs> you, you just, uh, you crayfish out of there. <laughs> All right. Anything else? No, that's it. All right. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the devil crayfish. Mm -hmm. So again, Camberus diogenes. So during the interview, you'll hear us bring up the species epithet. Diogenes. Okay. And you remember this from the interview, yeah. right? So Diogenes was a philosopher, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of philosopher? Well, he was like a cynic, I guess. He, he, he actually criticized a whole lot of other philosophy of his day. And he was a, a Greek philosopher. Oh, yeah, right. So we were trying to figure out why uh, they used this term to describe him, and I found out why. Got it. Okay, yeah. I looked. I kind of looked for it, but I didn't see anything. So in the stories about Diogenes, they we mentioned in the interview that he threw off social complexities, did a lot of wacky stuff like masturbating in public and lived urinating. in a garbage can. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what it's attached to because supposedly he lived and slept in the streets in a big ceramic jar or a big ceramic tub. So think of like a wine barrel tipped on its side, okay. but even bigger, and that's what he lived inside. Whoa. Okay. Supposedly. Like, the devil crayfish lives in a burrow. Okay. So, I'm thinking that is where the species name comes from, uh, because they live inside this chamber in the ground. Yeah. Diogenes also means born of Zeus. Isn't that kind of cool? <laughs> so like, Dio means God, and Genus, Diogenes. Oh, really? Right? It all makes sense. Oh. Yeah. The etymology. And it was just kind of a name for Greek boys back in the day, Diogenes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. It, it, so he didn't change his name to Diogenes. I think he was born Diogenes. Right. I'm pretty positive. So as we keep mentioning, these guys are burrowing crayfish. And if you're like me, most of your experience with crayfish has been in running freshwater, looking under rocks, yeah. looking under logs. That's where most of our crayfish species are going to be found. But these guys are special because they do burrow. But again, they are not the only burrowing species. Yeah. So unlike most of the species, though, that are going to be found in moving freshwater, these guys live in mud flats, wet meadows, marshes, ponds, places where the water is relatively still. And then along the margins, that's where they're going to make their burrows. And they create these chimneys, these structures that can be six inches tall. Mm -hmm. And... Wayne describes it, how they roll up these balls of mud and then pile them up, creating this chimney over the entrance to their burrow. Yeah. So as far as what they look like, when I was looking this up, because remember, we didn't find them online, I did not find much that helped. Uh, when I looked at different descriptions, it said, well, their colors can vary from green to tan to dark red to reddish brown to gray. Mm -hmm. like, well, that really doesn't help at all. <laughs> But I did find a couple sources that said the young are mostly green, while older individuals are usually dark brown with orange or red on their pincher tips or the edges of the other parts of their body. Now, I've done a bit of 
crayfish ID and it's super, super, super hard to do. I don't know how much you can actually re rely on, on color. Right. And that's partly why I kind of brought up those diagnostic features of the crayfish, including that areola. And that was one way that Wayne said that you could tell apart the immunus species and the diogenes species um, is through that areola. I guess diogenes has a very, very narrow, almost needle-like areola. Um, whereas uh, Immunus has more of a regular uh, hourglass shape. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember him talking about that. Yeah. So all that means that it's very difficult to identify crayfish down to the species level. Yeah, and I remember that when I was keying them out, part of that dichotomous key was looking for little indents on the kilopeds. Could you, you see that with a naked eye? Well, we, we had um, hand lenses too, but it was still... It was still rough. Yeah. It was real rough. Yeah. <laughs> so the species that we were looking for, the devil crayfish, they don't get real big. Uh, I saw anywhere from one and a half inches up to four and a half inches. Yeah, I, I definitely saw up to four and a half. But isn't that not including the, the kilopeds? The pinchers. So it, yeah, it's just not no pinchers involved. Oh, okay. So that's even even bigger than, than you might think. All right, so I don't have too much more. Mm -hmm. I just want to talk a little bit about their life cycle. Sure. We don't really get into that too much during oh, yeah. the interview. But um, during the fall, really what we're moving into right now is when mating is going to occur. And then females are usually carrying the eggs by late winter. In the spring and May, large numbers of young are usually found at surfaces of fishless waters. And then between midsummer and into fall, those young will grow and start to dig their own burrows. Um, during the hottest, driest parts of the summer, like now in, in late August, early September... Adults are generally inactive in their burrows, and that's one reason Wayne took us out now at this time of year. He yeah. It's a good time to go. So these burrows usually, there's the chimney we described, and then the tunnel that goes down could go up to two feet down. Wow. And it very often will intersect with the water table, and that's where they're going to be hanging out. Yeah. I'm surprised they can dig that far down into the mud. Yeah, and I wonder how time-consuming it would actually be. I'd love to watch a time-lapse of it. Um, but in Wayne's paper, uh, they showed a diagram of what these chambers could look like. Yeah. And it could either just be a series of, of narrow tunnels, or it could actually open up into a proper chamber. Yeah. Um, so it looks like they can actually do a couple different versions of these tunnels. And sure. they can have multiple exits multiple chimneys as well. Yeah. And Wayne will talk about exactly what the chimneys look like. There's some different kinds. So they do spend most of their life cycle in these underground chambers. They provide shelter and protection during feeding, mating, egg laying, and rearing the young. And these burrows, they do provide connections to the ecosystem that they're in. I even saw one paper refer to them as ecosystem engineers oh. because so many other organisms may use these chambers. Makes a lot um, of sense. Yeah. So they do mix soils. They do allow rainwater to more readily penetrate underground um, during dry seasons especially small invertebrates may survive in the reservoir of water at the bottom of these burrows as well you know what when when wayne was uh, shoveling out handfuls of muck you know sand and dirt and, and clay and all that yeah. there was definitely tons of stuff in there there was like worms and yeah. there was all these insects coming out of the of the piles that he was throwing to the side of the hole so and there's actually a uh, a species of dragonfly, an endangered species called the Heinz emerald dragonfly, Somatochlora hiniana, that regularly inhabits their burrows in late summer. 
Oh, okay. So they, they, some of them in certain areas depend on these things. But each of the accounts I read about this, they said, although the crayfish is also a potential threat because they're known to prey on the larvae. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like a rabbit staying in a fox den. Yeah. Um, now, did you mention that that these tunnels can go below the frost line, and this is one of the ways that they survive the winter? I did not mention that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was one of the more interesting things, is that um, this time of year, they can really spend a lot of time in there digging deeper and deeper and deeper yeah. just to make sure that they don't freeze. So I thought so that was kind of good. If you are interested in, in finding one of these for yourself, Wayne does tell us what to look for and then how to dig them up. All right, um, so I think we've talked enough, but as usual, Steve's going to continue talking, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, it was just because of a couple things Wayne mentions. I'm not sure if we ever properly said what they were. So the first thing is that Wayne mentions that there's a commensal relationship between Cambrus diogenes and a species of ostracod. Um, and if you don't know what an ostracod is, they're crustaceans just like crayfish. But to me, they look a lot more like little, more oval and rounded clams. Um, but if you know what it looks like, it kind of looks like a mix between a clam and a daphnia, like this little water flea uh, with a clam shell closed around it. And they're tiny. Yeah, I used to collect them um, when I was sampling for zooplankton in, in the Niagara River, but I kind of wanted to give you a, a picture in your head. Okay. It's kind of like a little clam, sort of. They're not related to clams, but it's kind of like a clam. Um, and the last thing is that Wayne also brings up Lake Tanawanda. And this is just a, a lake that existed up to about 10,000 years ago. Uh, the water level of the Great Lakes was a little bit higher. Uh, and the water from Lake Erie actually drained into this large lake that basically went from present-day Buffalo on the western end and extended about 50 miles due east. Um, it's not really all that big compared to Lake Erie or Lake Ontario, where the waters actually flowed over the Niagara Escarpment into, but it was still a pretty big lake. So I just wanted to make sure we knew what an ostracod was, and because and, I think Wayne just briefly mentions Lake Tonawanda, yeah. just to make sure you guys know what that is, too. Good job, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, folks. So now we're going to go to the interview with Wayne. We hope you enjoy it. All right, so we are here at TIFF. Wayne, thanks so much for making time for us today. Happy to be here. So we were talking before we turned the mic on, and I hope Steve's okay with this. So the last time you were saying you found crayfish here? Yeah, it was about 30 years ago, believe it or not. Before Steve was born. <laughs> By a couple months, all right, I think. Or no, just after I was born, I guess, yeah. So, so you were newborn, okay. Um, and we're standing along the south shore of Beth Pond on the northern half of the preserve. And about 30 years ago, uh, I excavated the um, devil crayfish, Cambrus diogenes, from along the shoreline. I honestly have not looked for it since. I <laughs> uh, don't know if we'll see it here or not. The habitat has changed a bit. I see uh, we have a dense stand of Phragmites, the so-called common reed, along the shore. I would imagine that has not helped the habitat dynamics no. for birds. For a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Phragmites well, usually helps, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's facetious. It helps if it's not here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll take a walk around. Maybe actually we'll skirt around this extreme uh, southeastern corner and where it's not Phragmited. Okay. And uh, we'll see if we can find any burrows there. But I recall that it was along this slightly more western flank that I found them years ago. But why don't we try this open area? Okay. And maybe we should describe what we're going to be looking for. Like, what are these burrows? Okay, well, well maybe we should just back up a minute. There's a couple of different categories of crayfish behavior, and one of them relates to burrowing behavior. And there are burrowing crayfish, which is what we're looking for today. 
And there are non-burrowing crayfish, the typical crayfish that people think of in open water, under rocks and streams, or in, in dense beds of aquatic plants in weedy aquatic environments. But in terms of the burrowers, <laughs> there's even a further breakdown between primary burrowers, secondary burrowers, and tertiary burrowers. <laughs> <laughs> and the primary burrowers are what you might call obligate burrowers. They, they always live in burrows. And in the case of this particular species, the devil crayfish, as an obligate burrower, it only comes out of its burrow apparently to forage at night. Okay. But it's not. having said that, it's not clear to me whether they forage terrestrially, go back into the water, or both. I, I sort of have a feeling that maybe it's terrestrial, but I'm not really sure. But the reports are that they do leave the burrows at night to forage. And as long as a crayfish maintains a film of water on, a, on its gills, uh, under its carapace, they can be on land. And they can do okay. For and how it, long? As long uh, as it's wet? As long as the humidity is such that their gills stay moist. They can stay out stay out of the water. And, of course, at night, when the temperature is cooler and it's more humid, that is probably why they forage at night, in addition to maybe reduced predation pressure. Maybe there was some evolutionary uh, uh, pressure, you know, to, f to switch to nighttime foraging because of lower predation and also because of the lack of desiccation compared to during a hot summer day. But it would be very unusual, of course, for any crayfish to come out of the water during a hot, dry day. But apparently this crayfish will come out at night and forage. But again, whether it forages terrestrially along the shore or goes into the water and forages, I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. What makes you think it might be terrestrial? Just the fact that it comes out at night? Well, that's part of it. Crayfish are general omnivores, so any dead organic material that they can find and certainly they could find that along the shoreline, but of course they could find it in water as well. So it really, it's not clear to me. I, I, I guess I need to do a little more research myself <laughs> to answer that question. It's a bit of a puzzle to me. How do the, the primary burrowers differ from the secondary and tertiary burrowers? Well, the, certainly the tertiary burrowers burrow only intermittently or um, when water levels fall and they have to leave their primary aquatic habitats. For instance, if they're in a relatively shallow pond and it dries up because it's a hot, dry summer, they may have no choice but to burrow. Okay. So they only burrow basically because they're forced, forced to. You know, their habitat conditions require it. Secondary burrowers are probably what you would call opportunistic. Sometimes they burrow, sometimes they don't. It may not necessarily depend on habitat conditions or, or lack of standing water. And I'll give you an example. There's a very common crayfish that occurs in the 75-acre cattail marsh here. Um, I'm trying to remember the common name that's used, but the scientific name is Orconectes immunus. And it's very common in weedy, weedy choked uh, wetlands and ponds. And I've actually excavated Orconectes immunus in burrows side by side with Cambrus diogenes. Okay, I remember coming across that in your paper that sometimes they're found together. Right, yeah. and so one of the take-home messages there is if you find a burrow, you find a chimney, you're not 100% sure it's diogenes <laughs> until you actually excavate the crayfish. Yeah. yeah. But Orconectes immunus is a classic example of what you might call a secondary burrower or um, an opportunistic burrower. It doesn't do it habitually, just occasionally. Can you give people an idea of if we find a burrow, what it's going to look like and then how are we going to excavate it? 
Well, the, what you're looking for is a so-called chimney, which is the um, cap of excavated soil that the crayfish uh, actually uses its, um, its front legs, its chelipeds. Uh, it's sort of like a steam shovel. It forces its chelipeds into the moist soil, presses a, a pellet of soil against the underside of its body, and it sort of waddles in a way, <laughs> I would presume, up to the opening of the burrow that it's digging and then deposits it. And depending on the moisture content of that soil, these pellets can be piled up to form a, a perfectly parallel-sided vertical chimney, just yeah. like you know a, a cylindrical shaft. And one in the paper, it looked like it was about six inches long. Yeah, they five, can, six inches tall. Yeah, yeah, they can they can be definitely multiple inches. Uh, five, six inches is not unusual. Wow. But if the if the soil uh, texture is such that um, the soil doesn't sort of stick together. Uh, I've, I've, I've excavated chimneys that were like cow plops, <laughs> you know, more horizontal than vertical, yeah, and very okay. amorphous. Not you don't necessarily see distinct pellets. Right. But I, th- I think the chimney you're referring to in, in my paper that I photographed on Strawberry Island, very distinct individual pellets. Oh yeah. And what's what's interesting if you think about it, if you count the number of pellets in that chimney, that represents the number of trips up and down, oh. excavation trips. Wow. Yeah. I mean that doesn't those pellets don't occur there by magic or accident <laughs> sure, right. each of those pellets represents a one one set of uh, one portion of digging activity wow. wow so if that chimney contains 30 pellets 40 pellets that's 40 excavation trips if we're lucky enough to find one today what's going to happen if you find it well if we do find a burrow uh, what i like to do is take this uh, long-handled pointed shovel and carefully get underneath the the chimney whatever shape it is and move it to the side without disrupting it much to expose the opening to the burrow the hole the opening to the burrow and then the classic way that i do this is i'll take my hands and i'll widen with my hands sort of like working with uh, cookie dough just take the moist soil and push it aside to make a hole that at least is as big around as my fist and then the real big trick in this once you get the opening to the burrow wide enough that you can fist, fit your fist in, you take a stick. And this is not high tech. Right? <laughs> Obviously. You take a stick and you sort of vigorously stir up the water inside the burrow. And that water can be at varying levels depending on where the water table is. And generally the burrows are going to be in areas where the water table is higher because opportunistically the crayfish don't have to dig as deep to get the water. Because they do burrow down to get to water and they make a chamber somewhere below the surface, depending on where the water level is. So you're agitating the water and... The water gets agitated, it gets all roiled up and silty, and the crayfish, I don't know if it responds to the water movement or the siltation, but it invariably the crayfish will come to the surface of the water in the burrow, and you'll, see, you'll always see initially the antennae just waving around right at the surface of the water. <laughs> and this is where you have to be um, bold and you just thrust your hand in and grab the crayfish <laughs> and pull it out. And given that these crayfish can get to be four or five inches long and they have pretty strong claws, as you can imagine from being able to do this burrowing, yeah. sometimes you get pinched. Oh yeah. So this might be the biggest crayfish I've ever seen. Is it going to be big? Because I, I used to Some, catch crayfish down at my cabin, and they were never huge. They, yeah, you know, sometimes that. you got big ones, but I can't remember the the length of the one that there was a monster that I collected in a roadside ditch on Grand Island. I'm I'm guessing it was at least four inches long without the the legs or the chelipeds sticking oh. out. Was that the one on Ransom Road? 
Yes, in front of the Grand Island High School. Because right, I had to ask. I was in the paper. I was reading the list of sites, and I saw the one was a ditch in front of Grand Island High School. I'm like, that's well, a, how did you find that's that? A spot. I had a friend. I had a friend who lived on Grand Island, and he actually spotted it and told me about oh, okay. that site. So he and I went there, and that's when I excavated that particular one. Yeah, and it was enormous. But I, I've, I've dug up a few other uh, large ones as well. So this this method you have. Is this something you came up with, or did someone share this with you? No, I, ca- I actually came up with that myself, well, the <laughs> hard way. I, I'm, I think I told you the first time I ever excavated one of these was literally 38 years ago, the end of August 1980, at the Iroquois National Wildlife Refuge. And I took a long-handled shovel like this, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm almost, almost embarrassed to admit now, but I dug a hole that I could crawl into. <laughs> I mean, it was a foxhole. And, you know, before I, before I came, I realized the easy way to do this. I did it the hard way. It's like everything else in life, you know, you, you do things the hard way, and then you learn yeah. uh, how, to be more, how to be more efficient. Well, uh-huh. So initially, I was digging foxholes to excavate these things, and realized you don't have to do that. And what's curious, the late naturalist and Buffalo News columnist David Bigelow, who was actually a good friend of mine, uh, he, he published one of his articles about this crayfish based on what I was doing. And he remembered some information, some naturalist background information that raccoons, he believed or was told, are known to do similar things similar to what I did, except they don't use a stick. They just use their paw. Wow. And get, stir, get them up, to come up? Stir up the water and apparently <laughs> uh, grab the crayfish when it comes to the top. Wow. Now, I don't know if he personally observed that or that was secondhand information, Shit. but mm-hmm. David mentioned that in his Naturally column published in the Buffalo News many years ago, obviously. Yeah. Let's try to find one. Okay. Yeah. Now, before we dig this up, Wayne, I know one thing I did learn about you early on is that you're not just a fan of entomology but you're also a fan of etymology and do you happen to know why it's named diogenes is that in reference to the philosopher the one that alexander thought so highly of or is it or is diogenes a genus to another species that it's similar to or well i I believe diogenes was a a character in greek mythology yeah but i I can't remember what the uh connotation is of diogenes i I looked it up today oh you did and he was known as he believed that society was messed up and bad so he would urinate in public and he off in public <laughs> he, did. he uh he also On he stage. lived he lived in a garbage can but this guy he i think that one of the famous quotes is from alexander the great saying if i were not alexander the great i would be diogenes right. he had alexander the great wanting to be him <laughs> so i don't know this guy must have been some I'm weird philosopher genius too, yeah i'm gonna let you guys handle it okay <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to ask, you mentioned the first time you found one of the Diogenes specimens was at Iroquois National Wildlife Refuge. Correct. So when you found it, were you looking for it or you just happened ah, to stumble upon okay. it? Okay, well this is, this is a, sort of the serendipitous part of the story. I did my undergraduate degree in biology at UB and I graduated in 76, 1976. <laughs> During the fall of 1975, when I was a senior, I took a course called Aquatic Ecology with Dr. John Storr, and he took us on field trips throughout western New York, and one of the places was the Iroquois National Wildlife Refuge. And we seined Oak Orchard Creek in the refuge, and I remember catching fingerling northern pike, so on and so forth. So we were walking along Oak Orchard Creek in the Iroquois Refuge, and Dr. Storr just offhandedly commented, 
Oh, you see those earthen structures? Those are the chimneys of Cambrus Diogenes, burrowing crayfish. And I said, okay. <laughs> That's kind of interesting that, you know, we didn't pursue that thought. But don't ask me why, but that always stuck in my head. So that was fall of 75. So fast forward five years to the summer of 1980, I had just finished my master's degree in entomology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My wife and I moved back to western New York. And I actually attended a... Um, a conference of a group called the North American Benthological Society, which is a group of people that study mostly, in those days at least, aquatic macroinvertebrates. And I got to talk at length with a guy at this symposium who was an amateur crayfish specialist. I mean, he, he even had published papers and interacted with some of the best scientists of, of the day working on crayfish. And I just offhandedly said to him, oh, do you see Canberra, you know, I was, I was, I was trying to talk crayfish talk so i said to him oh do you see cambrus diogenes very much in new york and he looked at me and he said it's never been documented in new york state and i said well i said five years ago i happened to be at the iroquois national wildlife refuge in western new york and then my professor just offhandedly said oh there are burrows of cambrus diogenes we didn't excavate any but he said that's what they were so i trust he knew what he was talking about and so this fellow's name was Joe Pickett. And so he said, look, as soon as you get back to Western New York from the symposium, I really want you to go out to Iroquois and see if you can find those burrows, and if so, excavate a crayfish. So I did. The end of August, I think it was only a week or two after I met him, I, I went to Iroquois by myself. Dug a foxhole. Dug a foxhole because I, I had no clue what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing, how to do this. I had made it up as I went along. It's probably good the staff weren't around, huh? Probably. They might have loaned me some heavy equipment so I didn't have to use a, a, a long-handled shovel. But anyway, I did indeed excavate the first known specimen of Cambrus Diogenes wow. in New York State. And that specimen I sent to Joe Pickett. And Joe sent it on directly to the Smithsonian to a crayfish specialist named Dr. Horton H. Hobbs, Jr. And he's, he was an amazing crayfish specialist. He confirmed um, the identification and that voucher specimen, if you will, the first one in New York, as far as I know, is still in the Smithsonian collection. Wow. <laughs> Your name on it? Yeah, as a collector, sure. That got me involved in this project, started looking elsewhere, and fast forward a number of other years, and I found them now at something like, I don't know, eight, nine different sites in western New York, and Tift is one of them. Ironically, my first year as administrator of Tift Nature Preserve in 1983, I was leading a volunteer walk. And I think actually we were by the North Blind, and I, I found a, a burrow there, and I pointed it out to people, and I think I excavated the crayfish there in 1983. Didn't know it was at Tift. Yeah. Just sort of... Stumbled. Yeah, serendipity. You're linked to the species for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my uh, late sister had uh, one of my favorite expressions. She used to say, chance favors a prepared mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know that expression? I do. Chance favored my mind because I was prepared by Dr. Storr and my late friend, well, late Dr. Storr and my late friend Joseph Pickett. And, you know, they educated me and got me motivated to, to do this. So. And the fact that he made that offhanded comment. And it stuck know. with me. Yeah. Thank God I have a good memory. <laughs> Don't ask me why that stuck with me. Right. But, it did. but I thought it was curious because I didn't understand the concept of burrowing crayfish at that time. Right. Uh -huh. I, when I was a kid, we got crayfish under rocks in the neighborhood stream. Cayuga Creek. 
but I didn't understand this concept of burrowing crayfish. This was new to me. You know, I've spent a good number of years learning about this stuff, and before you mentioned it to Steve during the, the tick talk, yeah. I'd never Yeah, the come average person is not, not familiar with that. Yeah. And, of course, they're not common in New York State. Yeah. Only if this handful of sites in uh, western New York. There's probably, they're probably at some more sites. No one's probably ever looked hard enough. Uh, after I published my paper in, I don't know, I think it was 1998, I sort yep. of uh, gave up continuing to look for them, but I, I assume they'll be found other places, but probably not a lot of places. That was my other question, is, you know, that paper, when I was reading it, it was 1998, 20 years ago, I was wondering if there have been a lot of other sightings or other sites found. If there have, I'm not aware of it, but, okay. you know, I'm not plugged into the... <laughs> the crayfish community. The, the crayfish community. <laughs> Such and, as it is. <laughs> you know, the New York Natural Heritage Program uh, sounds like they're doing surveys. I, maybe they've uncovered it at other sites. I don't know, but I, I'm proud of the fact that I was the trailblazer with this one crayfish it species. Be, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of interesting because the New York State Con uh, Conservation Department conducted pretty intensive surveys that involved fish and crayfish back in the 1930s. They covered all the watersheds in New York State, and that crayfish was never found during those short surveys. Yeah. And then there was a researcher at the New York State Museum named Denton Crocker, and he published a survey of the crayfish of New York State in 1957 as a New York State Museum bulletin, and he never found it either in his survey work. But he predicted, uh, he, he made a comment about Cambrus Diogenes in his monograph on the crayfishes in New York, and he said that it may be found here because it's been found 60 miles from the New York State border in Pennsylvania and 75 miles from the New York State border in Ohio. And so he was aware of it being close to New York State, but actually never having been found here. But I think it's just a matter that no one did intensive field work in western New York. And in your paper, just so the listeners know, you pointed out that the work that you've done looking for it here in West New York, this is the extreme northeastern tip of its range, right? Yes, if you include the adjacent Niagara Peninsula of the province of Ontario, Canada. This species, curiously, has a, otherwise a very widespread distribution that goes all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, I saw on the map. It's got a pretty, and, pretty and, big and, area. And through the whole Midwest, including the state of Wisconsin. So it's not just a latitudinal thing, because Wisconsin, southern Wisconsin anyway, is about the same latitude as western New York. So. Yeah. It's not a rare crayfish throughout its whole range. It's only rare in New York because it's at the extreme northeastern edge of its range. Yeah. And it probably relates to recolonization after glaciation, and that was one of the other storylines in my paper. I, again, it's uh, maybe too much, too much information, but again, because of my interaction with Horton Hobbs Jr., he also happened to be a specialist on a group of tiny crustaceans called um, ostracods, sometimes called seed clams. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's a certain family of ostracods that are commensals, that meaning they live in association with another organism. And there's this family of commensal ostracods called the family Entocytheridae that live in the uh, brachial chambers, the gill chambers, underneath the carapace of crayfish. Whoa, and, okay. so, and some of these commensal ostracods are very host-specific. And one of the things he did was, when I sent him my crayfish from western New York, he took the sludge from the bottom of the collection container, he extracted <laughs> the ostracods, slide-mounted them because they're tiny, mm -hmm. and identified them. And it was a species of Entocythrid ostracod that had not been previously reported any further east or north than Indiana. So okay. it was a big range jump. Now, do they typically go with Diogenes? 
the one particular species that he identified was known to be associated with Diogenes. Don't ask me why, but I can even tell you the scientific name. It's R- Radinocythera serrata. Wow. Is the name of the Entocythera ostracod that's apparently, I think, host-specific to Cambrus Diogenes, the devil crayfish. So what I happened to be doing my Ph.D. at the time then at the University of Toronto, and actually my desk space was in the entomology collection room at the Royal Ontario Museum, right next door to the invertebrate collection. So Hobbes said to me, knowing that there were these isolated colonies along the north shore of Lake Erie in the province of Ontario, he said, can you go into the invertebrate collection at the Royal Ontario Museum, pipette off the sludge from the bottom of the (laughs) containers of those specimens from Turkey Point and Long Point and send them to me, and I did. And he slide-mounted them and identified them and Radinocythera serrata. So one of the interesting things is that tiny little commensal ostracod provided like a marker, almost a biogeographic marker that linked the western New York population to the upper Midwest. And so one of the things I did in that paper was hypothesize a post-glacial dispersal route from the upper Midwest into western New York and the Niagara Peninsula of Ontario via what was probably the ancestral shoreline of, of glacial Lake Erie or its predecessor. Probably when the drainage system was very different, lake level was probably a lot lower. Right. It probably crossed that drainage and got onto the north shore of Lake Erie. Then when the lake level rose, it essentially separated the, the Canadian populations, I presume, from the U.S. populations because that's, that's a big body of water for a crayfish to cross. Sure, Especially yeah. if, if you're a burrower, it probably, you know, <laughs> probably doesn't happen. So. Yeah. So this population has probably been established in post-glacial times when the drainage is very different in this area. Probably Lake Erie was more of a stream than a lake. It was probably very wetland-like, that stream, very mucky and low, and that's the kind of environment that Cambrus Diogenes likes. It likes the margins of wetlands and slow, sluggish streams. So why do you think it didn't spread further into New York State? That's an interesting question, and I don't know the answer to that, except to say it's never been found further uh, east than Iroquois, as far as I know. So I'm trying to think of any barriers that might be there. Well, it's, it's curious, again, if you're familiar with the glacial history of western New York, there was a glacial embayment called Glacial Lake Tonawanda that essentially stretched between the Onondaga and the Niagara Escarpments. And that glacial lake then drained through spillways north into Lake Ontario. But it seems like the, the existing colonies of Cambrus Diogenes seem to be associated with the remnants of Glacial Lake Tonawanda, the mucky remnants. But only so far. But only so far. And, and it's a really good question that you ask, and I don't know the answer except to say I continued east along, you know, following a transect east along wetlands that were associated with Glacial Lake Tonawanda. I went to Burgeon Swamp in Orleans and Genesee County. Then I went further east to Zurich Bog in Wayne County, and I went even further east to Cicero Swamp outside of Syracuse. Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Didn't find any burrows. So as far as I know, unless someone has done more intensive field work and has different information, Iroquois National Wildlife Refuge is as far east as this population occurs. Well, we can do a little bit of research. Yeah. If you contact the New York Natural Heritage Program, they may or may not be willing to share other localities. And you can say that you interviewed me, and 
I, I presume they have my paper. Maybe they don't. If they don't, I'd be happy to send them. <laughs> I got a stack like this. It hasn't exactly been a hot seller. <laughs> and I don't sell them. You know, I give them right. away, but no one. <laughs> They're not beating the path to your door. No, <laughs> no. I never had a lot in the way of reprint requests for that paper. So I have a number left. I'd be happy to share anyone that wants a copy of it. It's kind of a cool little paper, though. It combines biogeography and symbiotic relationships between the Antisithrid ostracod and the crayfish and, you know, general habitat and natural history information. You covered a lot of ground in a short paper. Yeah, yeah it was kind of fun. That's the stuff I like to do. Now, I'm really, I'm really glad we know this story, though, because before this... I was convinced that this crayfish must have been some vector for human disease because because <laughs> you done so because we know about your tick and mosquito. Yeah, of course, that was long after I worked on the long after I worked on the crayfish. So. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know. No, it has nothing to do with human disease. That'd be so fun if we found out. That then there would really be a connection between you and that species. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's see what. Yeah, what let's we can just find. try to find something else. And so, we started to look in earnest for the devil crayfish. We worked our way along the edge of the pond, all the while searching for any signs of the crayfish chimneys. Eventually, we had to push our way into a dense stand of Phragmites, and after about 10 minutes of searching and stumbling our way through, we found a small opening and some signs of excavation that we thought might be from the crayfish. Very tiny excavation though. One of the mysteries in doing this is sometimes you don't know what the heck's creating these burrows. <laughs> so we're looking at a hole in the muck that was just a couple inches across with what looked like a few pellets around it. If a mole or something comes flying out of there, <laughs> well, no, it wasn't a crazy. And Wayne's pulling back the dirt right now. Keeps going. It's going back towards the bank, but it's going horizontal, which makes me suspicious that maybe it's not a crayfish. It, it almost looks like it's also going towards your foot too, like it's going in two directions. Oh no, maybe I'm wrong. No, no, oh, no, no, you're, no, you're right. Is that a bad sign? No, because uh, there often are two passageways down into a burrow. That's not unusual. Trouble is this is not a classic burrow. And again, I'm not sure that this is related to crayfish at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, the way that's going horizontally, I don't think I want to do anything more. Yeah. Disappointed but undaunted, we continued on through the Phragmites. After about another 10 minutes of searching, I figured it was time to try a different approach. I decided to brave the water. Really? Well, I'll tell you, that would be the better way to do this. It gets deep pretty quick. So Wayne and Steve right now are pushing their way through the Phragmites. Deep stand, I am knee-deep in the water on the edge looking to see if I can find any chimneys. Wow, look at this one. This looks like a burrow. That looks one of the, like one of the uh, amorphous ones? Yeah. So maybe we are on to... Yeah, here's another one. Oh, that one looks a little bit more like a chimney. It's a low plop kind of thing. So folks, we're on the edge of a stand of Phragmites. The edge of the pond is probably about a yard away. Benefiting from some aromatherapy. Yeah, there's lots really. of mint around here. <laughs> a lot of mint. <laughs> so Wayne's digging back a cloud of dirt. You can see an opening down in the soil. It's not going down vertically again, though. Mm. It's just going horizontally. 
just below the surface. Sound of digging. It's a few inches down now. Folks, if you remember in Wayne's description, he's trying to dig down to where standing water is, right? Yep. And I'm not hitting any yet. Yeah. Which makes me less confident that we've got a crayfish here. I think we've got something else going on here. It could be a, like a star-nosed mole. So I think that we should maybe abandon that effort. Okay. After some more flailing about in the water and stumbling through the Phragmites, we decided to try another spot. We hiked across the preserve to another marsh with an adjacent lake. There was a long boardwalk that took us along the margin of the lake in the marsh, and Steve noticed some familiar plants growing nearby. So now we're looking at a few different species. I think um, some typha, some Sagittaria. Burreed. Well, but yeah, burreed we have. Uh, I saw some on the other side here. So we're on a boardwalk now along one of the other lakes and we're looking over the edge of the boardwalk down into the mud among the emergent plants to see if we can see any chimneys. Well, I remember the first one I found out here was out at the end on the left. This used to all be open over here. Folks you're hearing moving trains in the background. <laughs> Tift is definitely an urban nature preserve. Looks like there's there we go. There we go. There's a cow plop chimney. I think we just hit Pater, gentlemen. <laughs> All right. So Wayne is going to step down off the boardwalk. My recollection is it was right in this area here where I first found them in 35 years ago. It was much more open then. Uh, so one of the possible explanations is that habitat point. This was more early successional stage back then. But this is a low amorphous one. See the opening? Is it going down? No. So Wayne's sticking his finger into the hole and then pulling back. But I don't think that's the primary burrow entrance. I think th these are from juveniles. Oh, look at this one. There you go. See, there's a lot of activity right in this spot. Notice the diameter of the opening. Probably about the width of my thumb. Yep. So maybe an inch or so. So what I'm going to do is move the cap off to the side. Is the trowel going to be enough, or should we grab the shovel, too? I think we're in trouble if we need the shovel. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the other trick in doing this is, sometimes you collapse the tunnel. Oh. You have to put a guide down there so you know where to excavate. So Wayne's putting a stem down into the hole to act as a guide. Well, let me mark that. That goes in fairly. <laughs> yeah, that goes pretty deep. So we just tuck a stem in there, and it looked like it went in about eight, ten inches. Is this typical that you'd see several nearby? Oh yeah, yeah, they're often colonial, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Again, the idea is to make an opening that gets down the water. So this might be an obvious question, but what are they making the burrows for? Is this for reproduction? Uh, no, it's just habitat. I mean, they habitually live in burrows, and uh, when the water level drops in late summer, it seems to stimulate new burrowing activity. Will they overwinter in these too? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And they have to have a tunnel that goes below the freezing level oh, because geez. they can't, you know, they can't be subject to freezing. Sure. So another reason to be in contact with groundwater so it's thermally buffered. So you can see why you need a leader to sort of guide your digging. Oh man, there are some wicked cattail rhizomes in there. This is not one of the easier ones I've ever excavated. Suddenly got a little softer. 
I think we're getting closer to the oh there we go. I think we're getting closer oh, to the yeah. water. You can you can see the hole going down in that direction now. Yeah. So Wayne's dug down, what do you think, about ten inches? Mm-hmm. Now, do you do you see this? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so the hole is continuing kind of back towards almost underneath Wayne. That is one industrious crayfish. I remember when you were first telling me about this crayfish that sometimes you are down to your shoulder. Uh, <laughs> I know, I, I literally remember the first time I did this at Iroquois, I was laying on the ground on my side and my fingers were all the way down and I have a 35 inch in, inseam. So um, yeah, they, they can go pretty deep. And I think this is proving that right. I'm not sure we're going to be able to get to that chamber. Because it's so deep. Because it is so deep. It's getting pretty mucky now. Yeah, it's we're close to water here. Ooh. Yeah, there oh yeah, there's water. So Wayne's almost elbow deep now. There's water. But if I don't make this bigger, if I can't reach in and grab it, oh we're not gonna have a crayfish. <laughs> but you're certain this is a crayfish. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm uh, pretty confident. Okay. We've been finding that I think is it's great. I'd love for someone to walk along now. <laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> Excuse me? You can't be doing that. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're not really at a... We're hit, we hit water, but we're not really at a chamber of standing water. Do you think you're in the chamber right now or still just um, I tunnel? Think, I think it, it really opens up under here. Okay. I mean, it's, it's bigger than my fist without me even excavating. I just have to get to it. Wayne's bringing up handfuls of wet, gray mud. Any kingfish are flying overhead? There's, there's just nothing there. Hmm. Can't say you didn't try. Yeah, it's frustrating though. I mean, that was a relatively fresh excavation too. I really expected to find something in here. Bet not many other guys your age are doing this right now. <laughs> Or our age. Yeah. Or my age. That's because they have their sanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't know what they're missing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're looking for crayfish. Oh, man. You must have someone out there. We're normal. Yeah. Gentlemen, I officially give up. All right, so we found evidence of the crayfish tunnels. We found their work. Well, it's nice to know that they're still here, though. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The only question, though, we don't know if it's Immunus or Diogenes. Oh, because well, they both. And I know, I know Immunus is in here because I collected some here at Insectable a couple of weeks ago. And they both make similar chimneys. Yeah, you can't tell them apart until yeah. you get the crayfish out. Okay. A noble effort. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we hope you enjoyed that, folks. And first and foremost, we do want to say thank you to Wayne again. Wow, that was such a great time. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. There was one point where Wayne had his arms down in the mud, and Steve was stripping leaves off of a, a twig to use as a leader, and I was recording, and there were people walking by wondering what we're doing, and I was thinking, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> Bunch of weirdos playing in the mud. Yeah. I think Wayne said that he felt like a kid again or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's kind of the life he leads. So uh, 
All right, guys, so we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Orange Julian and Mark Vanderwater. Oh, he's a friend of ours. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So we're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we give a special thanks to our top patrons. So thank you, Nick and Rebecca. We named the dog Indy, Rob, and especially Ken, Diane, Alyssa, Morgan, Elizabeth, Daniel, and Susan. Thank you all so much. And we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers. So thank you, Goatfang64, Gardener Burn, and Vyashino16. Man, I don't know if I'm putting the emphasis on the wrong syllables in that one, but um, keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. And I do have to say that just reading over the reviews, people just have the nicest things to say. Yeah. I mean, really. Folks, we really appreciate the kind things that people are saying. We do love criticism, and if you have constructive criticism you want to share, but it really is encouraging to read the comments people have been writing. I've, I was... Okay, let me just say really quick. I have a favorite comment. Okay. We got a five-star review, and I don't know... I don't remember which, which reviewer it was. Five-star review, they basically only had negative things to say. But they were like, these guys aren't funny at all. Five stars. I know. <laughs> but it, and they weren't being sarcastic. They really didn't like our humor. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't quite get that one. But, I, but I, I loved it. I'm so glad that they still gave five stars. <laughs> I also want to thank the people that have been um, sending emails and links and articles lately to us, sharing those things. And a lot of those we've been able to share with the audience um, through Facebook or through Twitter. So people like Monka Ward and some other people as well. Thank you very much for taking the time to share those things with us. Um, really, we've loved them. And as always, our artwork was done by Always Wandering Art and links to all their websites and Facebook pages and Etsy stores in the description. This might actually be my favorite piece that they've done so far. I Have you seen, seen it yet? No. Oh, it's beautiful. Cool. It's super, super nice. If I were one of you guys, I'd buy it. <laughs> I'm sure it's up on their store. <laughs> all right, folks, if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to make suggestions for the show, uh, criticisms, if you have questions for us, email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. You can like and follow us on Facebook. You can tweet at us at Field Guides Pod or follow us on Instagram at Field Guides Podcast. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides. But if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whichever podcatcher you use. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like we also have to give a thank you to our friend Jerry Rising. He joined us back for the Witch Hazel episode, but he's a local nature writer, and he just published a nice article on us in the Buffalo Spree magazine. I saw it in Barnes & Noble. Did you? Yeah, I did. Unfortunately, it's not available online, and unless you're from the Western New York area, I don't know how you're going to get your hands on the Buffalo (laughs) Spree, but we did post it on our Facebook page. Yeah, and and, and guys, don't forget that um, all the links to everything that we've done with Wayne in the past will definitely be in the description. Yeah. Um, And... uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks, folks. And we'll see you next month. There's the borough of Sylvan Charles. What, what is it? Sylvan Charles, also known as Woodchuck. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard them called Sylvan Charles. No, I made that up. I made that up. <laughs> you take that for whatever. Yeah. <laughs>